the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by former congressional staff member, geopolitical analyst, and author Brandon Weikert. His new book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and his website is theweikertreport.com. That's W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T report.com. We'll be talking about the new Space Force uh, and Space Race, China, and more. How are you feeling on this inauguration day, Brandon? Uh, well, it's it's always great to see, you know, our democracy in action, even though, uh, you know, we have had a heck of a time in the last six weeks, at least in terms of the transition of power. But we got through it. And, um, you know, I I didn't support the president uh, Biden, but I I'm very proud that he has handled this with great alacrity and dignity. Um, and I, I, I'm really hopeful that he can he can bring the country together as he has said he will. And, and, and you know, it could be an interesting uh, few weeks going forward <laughs> as well. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I was worried, but so far things are looking OK. Uh, so yeah. per perhaps we can start by asking, uh, why is this the moment? to look to the heavens uh, once again. You know, why ex-President Trump now took the initiative uh, and basically why now? Because we, we hear about all this tech that's rolling out as we speak uh, or on the verge, everything from AI, 5G, 6G, quantum internet, uh, quantum right. computing, blockchain, etc. cetera. Uh, and then curiously, this simultaneous announcement of the fourth industrial revolution and subsequent right. great reset, uh, which has happened just around the last few years uh, as the Space Force has just now been created. You know, is it because the technology is ready for prime time now? That's exactly right. It's It's ready to go. And we've got Uh, primarily a great geopolitical threat from China. Uh, we didn't have that really before. It was there, but they weren't technologically or economically where they are now. Um, even in light of COVID, the, the Chinese have continued a pace with their technological development as well as their economic growth, uh, especially compared to us in the United States. So um, the last really decade, China has just caught up in so many ways in the high-tech sector. You know, we were told in the 70s that we can offshore a lot of these old world manufacturing jobs because America was going to be the center of this new knowledge-based uh, economy, this new revolution in computing, and, and we would give them the old, the old jobs, the dirty jobs, and China would basically be the sweatshop of the world forever. And we in the United States, we'd be okay because we'd have all the white collar and, and knowledge-based jobs. Well, the Chinese, they didn't agree to that. The Chinese said, we're going to take those blue collar jobs. We're going to build an industrial base indigenously. And then we're going to go up the, uh, the, the development chain or the ladder, the development ladder. And now here they are where they now have uh, uh, a high-tech innovation sector, not just imitation but innovation. And we see this in things like quantum computing, cloud computing, artificial intelligence research, wherein even great American companies like Google want to do business with the Chinese rather than with uh, the U.S. military uh, uh, the, as they, they, they didn't want to do the Jedi cloud computing program because it would be used for drone warfare and, and surveillance, and they were opposed to that. But they were going to happily do a, a deal with China, which, of course, was going to do the same thing with the technology. Um, and then you see it also notably in their space program. I mean, China in the last decade has, you know, they've had two now temporary military space stations in orbit. Uh, 
Uh, they are now ready to send up in the next year a um, a major modular uh, space station that would be more advanced and comparable, though, uh, to the International Space Station. They call it Tianhe-1. Uh, we've seen the, the advances that China's made with their lunar program. And I think it's important to note, as I do in the book, that the head of China's lunar program a few years ago, Yi Pijian, he told audiences quite publicly that uh, China views uh, uh, the moon as the South China Sea. And uh, they view Mars basically as the East China Sea. And uh, they said, and then he added the universe is an ocean. And so we see what China's doing at the maritime level, how they're, how they're illegally building these man-made islands in order to lay claim to the vast natural resources uh, underneath the seabed of, for instance, the South China Sea. We see how they're, you know, doing things in the East China Sea to enrage the Japanese and also to compete for natural resources there. Um, you apply that to space. Space is a, is is chock full of mineable, uh, notably rare earth minerals. And China has been wanting to dominate the rare earth mineral market for years. They want to dominate high technology. You need the rare earths to do that. And so there's a, a coordinated strategy, a long-term strategy on the part of China uh, to, to, to get there and to beat the Americans. And all of that plays into the space program. And all of that plays into uh, not just the economics of space, but also the strategic and military side of space, where China now can really complicate American military operations by being able to target and harass our satellite constellations in orbit. And so all of that has kind of led into the four year, three, three years ago, the announcement of Space Force and the subsequent announcement of a robust uh, civilian space program to return people to Americans to the uh, moon and beyond that to Mars, and also uh, to get massive investments into new private space startups like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, Bigelow Aerospace, etc. Because we're creating an ecosystem now that will compete and hopefully defeat China's growing high tech ecosystem. In the beginning of your book, you mentioned, I believe, three uh, schools of space policy, kind of range, ranging from pacifist and internationalist to uh, full spectrum dominance. Against you, argue for space dominance. You know why, and and you know what is your view there? Yeah. So uh, that's I took a very controversial stance on this. This is not a popular stance. Um, the the default position uh, for most people in the academic side of space policy, uh, they're utopians, I like to call them. They, they, they think space should be treated as a sanctuary, weapons-free, and basically uh, you know, no real economic development beyond satellite usage, really. Um, then you've got the um, survivability school, uh, which they say that we they admit that we're very reliant on space, notably satellites, but they want us to basically uh, diversify and not be as reliant on those systems in space because they think that it's too vulnerable and it's too expensive to really depend on them. And it's a strategic vulnerability that our enemies like China and Russia are happily going to exploit. Uh, then there's also the, the, the traditional military mentality has been uh, space control, which is more deterrent-based. It acknowledges that space is military Militarized, but it argues that maybe space shouldn't and definitely in their minds 
isn't weaponized and we should avoid that. And so it's it's a bit more of a kind of a split the difference mentality. And this since the Obama administration has been the uh, preferred uh, tactic of the U.S. military, which is uh, it's deterrent based. It's very reactive. Uh, it doesn't exploit, in my opinion, space the way it should be uh, by a country as technologically advanced and vulnerable, by the way, as we are in space. And then my model is the space dominance model which says that uh, we are the most reliant on space technology right now, satellites. Uh, it looks like we're going to become even more reliant on space, uh, even if it's just for the the sort of uh, rare earth mining side of things, one way or the other, we're going to come to depend heavily on space beyond what we already are. And so as that reality comes in and until countries like China and Russia and the European, all the other countries, until they become as dependent on space as we are, I say that that's an asymmetrical threat against us and we should do everything in our power by using a robust uh, you know, commitment of resources to not just defending ourselves in space, but also to really dominating space so that we compel others to uh, basically work with us in developing space rather than against us. Mm -hmm. And to talk a bit about, I guess, the military aspect, you know, most people can visualize or imagine traditional battle spaces. You know, we have conventional warfare on land that we've known since right. the beginning of time. Then there's, you know, sea warfare with uh, submarines and ships. And then, you know, nuclear war with the horrific atom bombs that we have. Right. And with advancing technology, we're, you know, we're only now becoming aware of information warfare. In fact, I'd argue that most people today still do not understand that they are in the midst of a, you know, serious information war. Oh, yeah. And, and, and this leads us to, you know, to the battlefield in, in space, as you've been kind of discussing and um for most i think it's hard to visualize you know what does the battle in space between adversaries say u.s china uh russia look like yeah well this is a great question and so first of all i think it's important to understand um in the 21st century especially the united states military is it's not just a land or a Navy, or a Air Force, or a cyber power. It is all of the above. And all of those uh, terrestrial domains, they rely on space, the satellites in orbit, to augment and project power. And so um, our enemies have figured this out. And they've looked at it and said the satellite architecture as it exists right now for the Americans is their Achilles heel. For 10 or $15 million, China or Russia can use technology really from the 1970s, anti-satellite technology, to either launch a missile from the ground or from an airplane up into space, track and destroy American satellites in orbit, or they can use lasers. China's really building out this capability, the laser capability to temporarily blind and disable American satellites. And in the time frame that those satellites are blinded, China will then make bold moves in the other terrestrial domains, like say invade Taiwan, when we, we don't have over the horizon capabilities at that point, because they blinded our, our communications, our surveillance, our nuclear command and control strategies for uh, 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 our nuclear command and control systems. For instance, uh, Russia has similar designs. Russia's also really, uh, and China's starting to do this as well. 
Russia's been developing uh, co-orbital satellites, what they used to refer to as Istribitel Sputnikov. Uh, and these are technologies that basically, they're very rudimentary. They're small satellites that are fast moving with grappling arms, something like a 1970s Moonraker, James Bond villain. Uh, and they literally tailgate our bigger uh, unwieldy, sensitive, essential uh, satellites in orbit, and at a moment's notice can clamp on and either rip the insides apart physically or can physically push the, the, our satellites out of their orbit. And it'll take some time for our people on the ground to figure out what exactly is going on. And uh, if they push, the Russians or Chinese were able to push our satellites out of orbit, we would basically have to launch a new one, obviously, because our old ones would be burning up in the atmosphere. We right now, when Trump took over in 2017, January 2017, we had few spares available because they were so expensive to build out. What the Trump administration did, and I hope the Biden administration continues, was they worked on basically making our vital satellites for the military less complex, easier to be married with uh, civilian systems uh, so that they could stay involved in a fight longer, uh, basically attempted to disaggregate or sort of decentralize existing satellite architecture so that you couldn't get that kind of bolt from the blue attack that would totally knock us out. We would have redundancy. And part of having the redundancy would be having cheaper, easier, uh, less complex, easier to launch uh, satellites. And what we were facing when uh, Trump took over was the exact opposite. It was Thomas Taverny, who was a retired Air Force general, I quote him in the book, he called it the vicious circle of space acquisition, where you would uh, the Pentagon would throw all of these capabilities into one satellite that would create a lag time between uh, the uh, the need for that satellite and its launch. It would it would make the satellite uh, unwieldy and physically large and heavy, so you'd have to have these expensive special rockets to launch them. So that would mean it was too expensive. So you could only do a few launches at a time. And oh, by the way, most of those at the time, most of those launches were reliant on Russian-built RD-180 engines, which of course became a strategic cudgel. Uh, that the Russians happily used on us after we sanctioned them for the Crimea invasion in 2014. Thankfully, we have now worked in SpaceX Falcon 9. That took a fight, though, and I detail that in the book. But the bottom line is the Trump administration focused on the military side, making satellites cheaper to produce, cheaper to launch. And when you save money like that, you're then able to take that money saved and reinvest it theoretically, into building out more capabilities in space. And, and you now have a space force, which is doctrinally uh, you know, separate from all the other branches, and they can channel all of their resources into satellite defense, into satellite warfare. What do you what do you mean? So when you look at uh, what what a space war could look like, it's not going to look like Star Wars. It's not going to look like Star Trek. It's it's not even going to look like um, a Battlestar Galactica. It's going to look um, very different. It'll be it'll be a quiet war. We won't see it, but we'll feel the results of it. Uh, so you'll you'll have things, and you'll have to worry about also Ricochet, the 2013 film Gravity with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, really details uh, how uh, a weapons test in space uh, targeting a derelict satellite can create uh, wreckage. And in space, the physics of it, it's a vacuum. That wreckage will, will ricochet around the place and hit anything in its path like a bullet and knock out those systems. It's called the, uh, the Kessler syndrome. And so a, a war in space, if we're not careful, 
could very easily end up debilitating all of the satellites in the world because they're they're orbiting so closely to each other. And so it, it won't look like Star Wars yet. I think one day we'll get closer to that. But right now it will be quiet. It will be um, very barbaric, rudimentary. Think of the early submarine battles between the Confederate uh, Navy and the American Navy uh, with the uh, ironclads, rather, not the submarines, but the ironclads, where it was very rudimentary. They didn't really know what they were doing, uh, but but that's where we're at right now, probably with space warfare. But it's a very real threat, and if we don't master it now, we're going to be hit as we were on Pearl Harbor, uh, and it's not going to be pretty for us. Yeah, and, and another, I guess, uh, hot topic right now. So you mentioned uh, satellites, and there's all this talk of uh, cyber pandemics. Um, there were simulations called like cyber polygon, cyber attacks, right. EMPs now, which could cause yep. uh, blackouts and bring down, you know, our entire digital infrastructure, which is basically what our daily lives uh, revolve right. around. And now we're moving into these like uh, digital currencies and these global power elites like Klaus Schwab want to merge man with machine, you know, with their biopolitics, uh, yes, and it, yeah. di digital passports. And, yeah. And so, you know, I can't imagine what a severe, you know, uh, th this factors into the space uh, battle oh, yeah. as well, right? The MPs and, and whether yeah. by non-state or state actors. So, you know, how devastating could, could this be? Right. Well, um, it would be hugely devastating at best. Uh, a space war would basically knock us back to a 1970s era of existence. Um, especially if the Russians or Chinese or even with EMPs, the one to really watch out for is North Korea and Iran, the rogue states. Um, and they're both heavily invested. North Korea is very advanced in this technology. In 1994, Soviet former Soviet defectors, uh, two generals testified to Congress that in fact they were part of the Soviet uh, uh, policy of offloading advanced Soviet EMP capabilities to North Korea. And the North Koreans have only intensified that program over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and so uh, it's a big problem. An EMP strike will send us back to the 19th century. And uh, when I worked on the Hill, the EMP commission was something that I, I remember very well. And uh, I've since I've since had a lot of contact with many of the members uh, that that are still involved with EMP protection. Uh, and uh, basically, we're talking about an EMP strike over the continental United States could knock out 90 percent of the power grid. And you can see anywhere the worst case scenario is over the course of two years with all the power being knocked out, basically upwards of 70 to 80% of the population being, being wiped out either directly or more likely through indirect things like not being able to get medications and bad water, uh, not being able to get fuel, you know, sort of the, because everything we, we need relies on technology, whether it's getting gas at the pump, it, there are electric switches that open that gasoline valve that allow your car to receive gas, EMP would knock that out. There's no, there's no manual override. The, 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 we've become so dependent on the technology, it's insane. We could be seeing things like mass rioting breaking out in the cities. You know, Think of this summer, what we saw with the race riots. Imagine that times a thousand. I think a good example would be the 2002 New York blackout. Um, only throughout the whole country. And it wouldn't just affect, by the way, the United States, because parts of the Mexican and Canadian energy grids are tied in with America's 
you could you could knock out Canada and Mexico as well. It would be a very very nightmarish scenario, and it is not that far off from happening. Um, and another thing they could do with EMP attacks is directing them at our satellite infrastructure to to knock them out, which is something I know that we're concerned about. Um, in fact, beginning in twenty twelve. I think it was 2012 or 2009, uh, North Korea has launched a total of, I think, three or four now um, bizarre satellites that have just sort of been tumbling in orbit. Uh, they said they were weather satellites, but in fact, the suspicion from James Woolsey, of all people, from the CIA, he is consistently worried, and I think he's onto something here, he is consistently worried that these were, in fact, rudimentary EMP devices, and that, and Iran has also launched two objects similar to that in orbit in the last few years. And the concern is that they're seeding the orbits with EMPs that could potentially knock out our satellites or knock out our energy grid. They want to hold the world hostage, sort of like another James Bond villain. Um, and, um, you know, these, these would be absolutely devastating. It would knock out civilian infrastructure, knock out military capability, um, you know, really, really scary stuff. We don't have countermeasures to it. Um, the Space Force is attempting to address it. The Trump administration with other things, executive orders and whatnot, they were attempting to address it as well. My great hope is that the, ne the new administration under President Biden doesn't just throw everything out because Orange Man was bad, that they actually sort of look at it and go, you know, we need to address these because as time progresses, our enemies are only getting more advanced, notably China, but also North Korea and Iran. They're getting more advanced and we're going to need to address that uh, beyond the diplomatic realm. And so we need to have real countermeasures and we need to have the ability to punch back which also is what my book was attempting to address. How do we stay in a fight, a space war, after we've been hit from a space Pearl Harbor? I wanted to get back to, to China. Uh, you've warned of Shanghai supplanting uh, Silicon Valley, making China the superpower. Sure. There's a quote in your book that says, quote, for years, China has studied the rise of the U.S. They've processed how America became the dominant power in the world. What's more, Beijing assessed that it was not military power per se that was responsible for America's rise. Instead, it was economics, cultural certitude, and the confluence of industry and technological development that fed into the right. rise of America's military and global dominance, end quote. So, you know, it seems China is really on its way, especially with the digital yuan. Now they're yeah. working with 6G uh, and other right. innovations. Uh, the AI expert Kai Fu Li has written an excellent book basically stating that China has practically won the AI game, yes. uh, which I ex also extrapolate to mean that, you know, they're winning on the other fronts. They seem to be most advanced in um, uh, between all other countries and rolling out their central bank digital currency and you know is china the the big kahuna the primary primary competitor and and threat to the us and you know can you tell us yeah. more about china oh yeah there's no doubt so um i i've written about this in the washington times about how my my real concern with the biden administration is going to be that they are going to really go hard after russia and i am hearing from people that i know close to the biden team that that is not just fanciful. That's not just media speculation that they're really going to hit Russia hard with sanctions and, you know, really holding them to the fire diplomatically. And I'm no fan of Russia, far from it. But the fact is, Russia's threat is very specific. They don't have the, I mean, and, and they're, they're smart people. I mean, people, I think, underestimate Russia as well to their own peril. But but the, ultimately, Russia doesn't have the kind of capabilities, the kind of economic uh, uh, dynamism that China has. And so 
while China is a growing military threat, we can still take them in a straight up fight. Okay. Whether it's a cold war, you know, that would mirror the, the previous one of really primarily military to military stuff. We can still stay with them for now. The real silver bullet for China is their economy. It's their ability to redirect their their industrious people, of which they are a very industrious people. It's their ability to to use and grow wealth and then redirect that wealth into other venues that will allow for the next great innovation. It's the fact that they do have an all-of-society strategy for not just staying apace with the West, but ultimately replacing the West as the great global power. Maybe not militarily right away, but certainly economically. There's a reason that they want to dominate the knowledge innovation sectors. It's not just for pride. That's certainly part of it. It's because they recognize those are the industries of the future. And if they're going to have the the, the dominance that Xi Jinping in particular has called for them to have by 2049, the 100th year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, victory over the, the nationalists who now run Taiwan, well, who went over to Taiwan, um, if they're going to accomplish that in any time soon, that China has to displace the United States as the leading innovation hub of the world. They've already started doing this. Uh, and this is why you have China really spearheading these new quantum computing centers in Anhui province. This is why the AI centers that they're building are key. This is an attempt to show the world we've got the money and the infrastructure. And with that, we can lure the best minds and investors from the West to us rather than the United States or Europe. And it's working. Uh, something that I love to tell my, my I, I brief the Pentagon regularly and something that I always tell, I also cover biotech. My wife is a geneticist by training. When she was at Yale doing her PhD studies, I remember she would routinely get these email blasts from Chinese state-owned enterprises saying, you know, Come to China, come to um, uh, uh, Wuhan is one of the places, come to Shanghai, open up a genetics lab, you do all the research here, China will pay your student debts, China will will woo you to not just come, but to stay and do all of your R&D here. And a lot of her cohort, who weren't maybe as interested in politics, were like, hey, we've got a lot of student debt. We want to go over there. Oh, wow. Look at the new infrastructure they have. Look at how they're going to treat me. I'm not just going to be a grunt as I would be here in America. I can really pioneer things. And you see this also with the investor community. You see this with a lot of New York hedge funds moving their their investments, not into American firms here in the West, but they're moving their, their investments into similar firms overseas in China because China has that field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come. And so China is, and David Goldman says this, I believe this, China is a lot like the Borg from Star Trek. They will assimilate you and your distinctiveness into their collective. And they're applying that. And so that's why you have, I think, the greatest threat to the United States coming from China. And it's not even directly their military. It's their economy. It's their knowledge. It's their education. They have no problem uh, you know, investing, for instance, in clean energy. I mean, we see one of the hottest burning Takamak nuclear fusion reactors is in China. And China has a huge pollution problem. Now, they, they say, look, we had, to, we had to rapidly industrialize. So that means we're going to have more pollution. 
but we're not idiots. We're going, we recognize that we're damaging the environment and that will have long-term uh, negative implications for our economic growth over the next century. So now that we've developed using coal and fossil fuels, we're now going to redirect some of those funds into developing nuclear fusion, space-based solar energy, uh, you know, these real cutting edge alternative energies, because the logic is one of them will pop, if you will. And that, and if they're the pioneers of that technology, they'll get the rest of the world or most of it to be reliant on them rather than the Americans who are way behind on this stuff. Yeah, I like how you put it, Wu Yu to, to Wuhan. And if you think about it, you know, half a century ago, this is how America operated. You know, right. my, my parents were immigrants uh, and everyone flocked to the U.S. for that's better right. better pay. And now that same thing is happening to China. I mean, yes. I, went off, I went off to Kazakhstan for the last few years kind of for that similar sort of reason. And you kind of brought me to my next question where in your book, you also talk about China gobbling up, uh, you know, there's they're gobbling up rare earths everywhere yep. uh, in Africa and they're joining Russia and obtaining access right. to resources in the Arctic now. Uh, and then now we have all this talk of mining uh, the moon. So that, that, that other aspect of winning space is the, the mineral resources that are on the moon uh, on right. ast asteroids and, and Mars. So can you tell us a little bit about those? Definitely. Three? So basically, uh, you know, China being the sort of neo-mercantilist power, uh, they've recognized that not only do they need to not be as reliant on traditional fossil fuels in the long run because of the negative pollution effect, but they also recognize that whether you're talking about oil, whether you're talking about rare earth minerals, they have to import that from abroad. Now, in some cases, they can get them from overland routes, which is amenable to them. But in a lot of cases, they have to import it overseas. And the maritime routes are very vulnerable to American interdiction. Our Navy is still capable. In fact, a, a retired Marine Colonel, TX Ames, he came up with the, what was it, the offshore uh, control strategy as an alternative to air-sea battle, which was a concept being floated around for potentially fighting China in 2011. He said, well, instead of doing that, which would be Air Force and uh, Marine and Navy reliant, let's focus on a strategy rather than a tactic. And let's let's say that if China does something really egregious, we have the capability with our Navy to basically go beyond their range and cut them off from all of their maritime supplies. China's aware of this. And so China's been saying, hey, look, if we can dominate space, if we can go to space and get those rare earths that we would normally get from, say, Africa, uh, if we can, or, or wherever, we can get them from the moon, we can get them from asteroids and beyond, uh, not only does that make us an appealing place for future investment and innovation and makes us a future innovation hub globally, it makes us a dominant space power, certainly, it also will make sure that we have a continual stream of resources, and it will also allow us to basically you know, spin off and, and innovate new technology. I mean, remember, this is the, the NASA still comes out with their spinoff magazine, which I think is a it's either a, a monthly or a quarterly uh, publication going back to the 70s, where they detail all of the spinoff technologies that have occurred thanks to our investment in space. And you really saw this with the Apollo investments, the Apollo mission, where you had just this, this explosion of, of spinoff technology that positively impacted uh, 
uh, the the civilian economy, things like pacemakers, cochlear implants. Uh, you know, that's just two that I can. It's not just Tang. You know, the drink. And so and so China's saying we can do the same thing. Only we're going to marry that to strategic resources as well. And that way it gives us a justification to constantly be up there to dominate and then to make the world become dependent on our resource base. We won't just be a consumer now, we'll be a producer and a unique one at that. And uh, that's what's going on. And so that that's the real threat. Uh, people, I think, don't realize the rare earth minerals, the essential nature of them and how they play into the production of Anything that's modern technology that's been built since the 1970s, you need rare earths. And they're rare earths not because they're hard to find. They're rare earths usually because they're hard to get to. Now, space mining presents its own challenges right now. But, you know, once you create a market for it and once you develop the methodology, inevitably cost saving and efficiencies will be worked into the system. You just have to do it. And so that's why China's looking at it because for us, it's all theory. You know, we pass a law, we talk about it, we have conferences and we do interviews about it, but rarely is there ever action. That's a political will issue. China, they don't just talk about it. They actually have the political will right now to do this stuff because for them, it's a question of survival. Now, we've been talking about Russia, China uh, and the U.S. And in, in your book, you have chapters on, on France and Israel, right. uh, India, Brazil, and we can't go over all of them, people can get the book and 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 look right. at each of those details, which, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, but maybe in general, you know, what can you tell us about you know the rest of the competition? Uh, right. It seems like India seems to be a really really a rising star. And so, yeah. what can you comment on on the other competition? Well, so India, the reason they're a rising star is, and, and this gets back to the argument of how do we view space as a sanctuary or is it a militarized system or, 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 or a domain or is it a weaponized domain? Um, all the space programs, going back to the Soviet space program and, of course, NASA, were inherently militaristic. Um, you know, the rockets we use to put people and equipment into orbit also can be used to deliver nuclear weapons over a, a target. And so the idea that it's the sanctuary is ridiculous. Uh, and India, they have a very militaristic reason for doing what they're doing in space, as well as an economic incentive. Uh, the Indians need, uh, in order to compete with the Chinese, for instance, for dominance over the Indian Ocean, they need better satellites. This was the basis of the RISAT-2B uh, satellite constellation they wanted to deploy, which will allow the Indian Navy to, to it will augment their growing potential blue water uh, Navy capability, which will allow them to dominate the Indian Ocean. So they've been investing heavily in satellite technology to help with that. Uh, India's also been heavily involved with developing satellites because they want to have greater surveillance capabilities over Kashmir, which of course is disputed with Pakistan. Uh, they learned their lesson with Lashkar-e-Taiba in 2008 when they basically, they didn't have the kind of surveillance uh, capabilities they needed to detect and prevent what became the, the, what was it, the Mumbai attack in 2008. Uh, so there was a great impetus after 08, after that attack, to actually invest in a satellite capability that would allow for them to have robust surveillance capabilities and counterterrorism capabilities in that part of the world. Also, uh, they needed um, 
uh, they, they also needed to, to compete with China, who was investing heavily in their civilian space program. So that's why you have this robust interest in developing uh, things like uh, reusable launch vehicles, also things like uh, cube satellites. Uh, it all goes back to the military need to compete. And um, so they look at, at it as, as a medium-sized country with a growing uh, economic base. They look at things at areas in space that they can exploit uh, to fill in those gaps that the great big powers haven't quite been able to fill. Uh, this is why a few years ago, the Indian satellite beat uh, the Americans to Mars. Um, and this is why now you see India looking heavily at uh, uh, trying to get uh, their personnel to the moon before the Americans can by the end of this decade, as well as before the Chinese can. Uh, this all goes back into strategic and economic uh, interests. Uh, you see smaller countries like Israel, which, again, they had a very serious military need for satellites. Also, by the way, with India and with Israel, they need uh, uh, satellites for nuclear command and control. We know with Pakistan, for instance, you know they they have a terrible command and control system. I mean, it is it is frightening how well they've been able to manage that nuclear arsenal, given how bad their command and control capabilities are. Well, India wanted to have a better, more robust, secure system. Israel as well with their nuclear arsenal. They they needed to invest in a satellite capability beyond a rudimentary one. And then they've also found that there's there's real interest on the part of their people and real desire to develop space economically. So they've noted that. Satellite is is an area of of great growth and near uh, near term uh, profitability, and so there's a lot of incentive to do that. And when you invest in when you invest in these programs, you then, like I said, can spin off and you can do other things technologically and come to develop uh, other technologies like quantum uh, uh, communications, for instance, potentially, uh, and 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 things of that nature. Brazil has also been been looking at for resource development, building out robust satellite capabilities. They've actually partnered in the past with China. And so you see these smaller countries, they're looking at areas that they could exploit to make them a key player in space. Uh, with France, they have French Guiana, uh, which is a, a very good place to do low-cost launches into low orbit, using Earth's gravity and rotation to their advantage. And so French, and this is why you have NASA. They they're partnering with uh, the the French Space Agency to launch the the Webb Telescope from from French Guiana. Uh, and so these are areas that smaller countries are looking to exploit because then they want to be able to say, hey, uh, you should be partnering with us, America. And there's an economic incentive. Also, uh, Japan with their space mining, they've really focused hot and heavy on potential space mining capabilities. This is the, the basis of the Ryugu uh, uh, recent mission where they did a, a collection of, of an asteroid, uh, a so soil collection. Well, this is all playing into space mining for them. And they want to really get first mover advantage, uh, not just to be appealing partners for other countries like America, but to also compete with China, which as you know, with Japan is a, is a big bugaboo of theirs. And so these are sort of the things. Australia and Britain is, are also very advanced. I, I didn't really get into them in the book because there had to be a cutoff at some point. Mm -hmm. But the, the, these smaller countries are looking at areas that they could exploit because they all recognize space isn't going away. This isn't the 1990s where there's a surge of interest and then it tapers off. There is a real technological capability now and an economic incentive as well as a strategic imperative to fully develop and dominate and exploit space. And whoever gets there first, uh, 
will win. And there's a lot of players this time. It isn't just, you know, red versus blue. It isn't the Soviets versus America. There's it's multiplayer. You've got also now multinational companies. You've got a lot of players now. And so it's, it's very competitive and, and, and the country that can figure out the most areas of exploitation will dominate the future. Just a quick question. I was curious, like on the meaning of, uh, you know, the fact that the U S still purchases, uh, a lot of the rocket engines from the Russians. So if, if there was a conflict, you know, what, what would that mean? We'd have right, to make well, our own or. Right. So the 2016, I believe, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, this was a John McCain initiative, was really trying to make the Air Force less reliant on the RD-180 engine. The problem is the RD-180 is a really good engine. It's extremely cost effective. And scientifically, or I should say, you know, it's the engineering aspect. It's just a very basic, brilliant engine. Uh, in fact, when Elon Musk got his uh, view of the engine, he even tweeted that it was brilliant. And so uh, the, the McCain and other uh, hawks in Congress at the time, looking at the strategic liability that this posed, because we have to launch a lot of our sensitive uh, intelligence and military satellites using RD-180s, um, they were really trying to force the military to divest and diversify its reliance. And this was actually the real reason why you had such a major investment in SpaceX from the military. Until 2014, 2016, um, the military didn't want to go near SpaceX because they thought it was an unproven rocket, too small of a company. They didn't think it was reliable. Uh, now, because of the fact that the Falcon 9s are indigenously built here and they have cut launch costs to the Pentagon by a whopping 40%, and Musk says he can do a lot more than that over time, uh, the incentive is there now uh, to, to launch these systems using those, those, those indigenously built um, rockets. Um, over time, yes, I think that we will be less reliant on the RD-180, but we basically saved the Russian space program after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, we paid, we literally, U.S. tax dollars uh, under things like Nunn-Luger, under things like the, the D-Track initiatives to basically prevent the proliferation of ballistic missile technology and nuclear weapons technology to rogue states after the fall of the Soviet Union. We basically paid Roscosmos to stay in existence, to continue hiring and employing Russian scientists uh, rather than having that talent go to North Korea or Iran. And we actually ended up a lot of the, there, I think there was five or six Soviet uh, uh, defense contractors who dealt with space and rockets. And basically the, the West, the Americans in particular, but the West overall came in and helped to make those Soviet entities uh, economically viable in the new capitalist order. And things like Avian Conversia uh, ended up getting worked into uh, the the American defense supply chain. So, thing you know, companies like Energomash, which builds the RD-180, uh, they were worked into our supply chain to make it more palatable for the Russians to not have those capabilities be sold to North Korea and other rogue states, enemies of the United States. We worked them willingly into our supply chain. It's sort of a smaller scale of what we did with China since the 1970s. It's really not gone well for us. Similarly, we worked those those old Soviet uh, entities into the American supply chain at a le lesser level, but really it gave the, the, the Russian Federation a leg up 
on competitors. And they were able to actually, that was the one area of the post-Soviet Russia that was not just advanced, but was actually very profitable and viable, uh, even as the rest of Russia was collapsing in the 90s economically, they were able to, 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 to move ahead. And it just became a matter of course that we came to rely on, on things like the RD-180. It's going to be very hard for us to pull that Band-Aid off. We need to. We're starting to. I wish it would be quicker. Um, but this is why we need to be investing heavily, not just in the traditional Boeings and Lockheed Martins, which use the RD-180, but we need to be investing in smaller startups that are more dynamic and cost-efficient, like SpaceX, to sort of lower overall cost and diversify capabilities. All right. I'm coming down to my last question or two, but uh, this is a big one, and I think it's also a key theme of of, of your book. And uh, one of the ways to for America to, to win space. But, you know, given the societal turmoil we've been experiencing the last years, you, you mentioned how America's weakness is due to the gutting of its culture in the 1960s yeah. to the point that we don't know who we are uh, today anymore. This la- lack of strength and, and vigor translates into not being able to be, you know, decisive and, and unified in making decisions and taking a- a action on issues such as winning the new space race. You pointed out in your book this amusing um, survey which revealed how uh, American kids today want to be YouTubers, while Chinese kids want to be uh, astronauts, largely. And you you gave an interesting insight that um, you know the Americans' loss of cultural identity has pushed them to seek fame in a bid to find belonging somehow. Right. You know, I, I never really wanted to have a YouTube channel. I'm just so curious about how the world works, and right. you know, I want to speak to experts like yourself to understand right. things. And you know, you say America's um, a nation that doesn't dream anymore. And I, I agree with your penulti- penultimate chapter where you hit the nail on the head, you know, quote, you say, by 1969, the cultural revolution in the U.S. was in full force. Most Americans chose Woodstock, um, you know, instead of like the, uh, you know, going to the moon. Uh, and so we're paying uh, the price for that awful choice right. today. So, you know, what's the greater meaning uh, uh, of what this means and portends for our future? Well, the greater meaning is that we have become, and this is really, you know, perfectly encapsulated with the events of the last few weeks here in the United States, where you have literally a chunk of the population that doesn't even live in the same objective reality, clearly. Um, in fact, I would argue both sides of the political divide, they're, they don't live in the same political reality. You switch from, you know, a Fox News to an MSNBC and back, you have two different visions of the same event. It's it's really frightening. And that's sort of a microcosm of what's been going on in the country, where now you have not just a bifurcation of political opinion, you have this sort of uh, uh, breaking apart of every aspect of our society. We don't, we don't have a common ethos anymore. You know, until the death of JFK, I would argue, and James Pearson has written about this a lot, I would argue that there was a unity between Republicans and Democrats, between all Americans um, on big issues, especially things like space exploration. They were things that we all wanted to do, no matter who was president. But after the 1970s, that all went away. And it's really coming to a head today where we can't even live in the same objective reality. And so you have this focusing on self. You have sort of this, the young people today are not inspired the way they were in the 50s and the 40s. And I say this as somebody who's a millennial. Um, You know, it's just, it's not the same. And um, 
you when you have a society that's that fragmented and that divided against itself, when there's n- there's no possibility of unified uh, strategy or interest being exploited, um, you're you're never going to be able to compete with a country like China, which, for better or worse, they are culturally very strong. They they think they know who they are. They have no problem telling the world who they are. Um, they are very nationalistic, I think in a bad way. Um, and and they don't really care about the opinions of others. And and within their country, they are united sometimes by force. And now that's not good, but but they definitely have a unified purpose and a mission. And it's one of national greatness and overcoming what they view as a century of humiliation. Um, we we seem to be intent on humiliating ourselves. In fact, Robert Zubrin talks about this in one of his books. I think it was Entering Space. I can't remember which one it was. He's written several books on this, this topic. But he he actually said that, you know, we are very similar right now to where the Ming dynasty was after the treasure fleet, the Ming emperor died. And then the control went to the bureaucrats who just didn't want to invest in Zheng Hu and the treasure fleets. And so they mothballed them and they turned inward. And for a while, they were able to ride on their past national greatness, past innovations. But suddenly they woke up one day and found that those scruffy barbarians from far off Europe were suddenly quite advanced and had no problem exploiting their country and basically colonizing them. And um, my fear is the reverse is happening today in the United States. And so, um, you know, this is all goes back, though to the cultural revolution in the 19, late 1960s here. And uh, we're still dealing with it. There's a great book that's come out recently by Helen Andrews called Boomers, in which she's very critical of that generation. And I think she she also hits the nail on the head. And I think this translates into a lot of what I'm talking about here in the United States, where we just we don't dream anymore. We don't have a shared unity of purpose. We don't even acknowledge the same threat. Uh, you know, and 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 so, how can a country come together and overcome a shared threat or and exploit shared opportunities if we don't share anything anymore as a community? That's the part that's really scary, and that can be traced back to those ideological, you know, vituperations back in the 1960s. We're still dealing with today. All right, my my last question, which I ask uh, most guests, which I think is important. You know, you have another quote from your book, quote, the ceaseless attacks on intellectual property, the pilfering of national security and trade secrets, the construction of the Belt and Road uh, itself and China's robust strategy for space dominance all play uh, a role in making China, not the U.S., the center of a new geopolitical world order, end quote. And so, you know, as listeners of this podcast can surmise uh, uh, over the years, I'm I'm anti-war, but my cold calculating understanding and observation of history tells me that we will inevitably have another big war at some point. Yes. You know, what are the chances of direct military conflict between the great powers today? You know, what do you see in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years? Um, well, in my book, I specifically point out I think 2022 is a very dangerous year for great power conflict. Um, I think in the next decade, we will have a great power conflict. Uh, what it looks like. You know, it, it'll be different because there's going to be a lot of information warfare. There's going to be a lot of kind of in the in the in the ether. There'll be a lot of conflict. Um, but I do think that a great power war is at hand. I think the big players will be the United States, Russia, China. 
I think that we will be fighting China, the United States. The question is, where will Russia lie? And that could actually determine who wins that conflict, because Russia always tends to be the determinant in these things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the the probability, I don't know what the number would be. I'd say, I'd say right now we're at 50%. I think in the next couple of years, it'll probably be 68 to 72%. And then I would say in the next decade, if we can get through the next, if we can get to 2028, the probability then declines for various reasons. But from now until probably 2028, um, I think after 2025, between 2025 and 2028 is a 75 to 80% chance that there's going to be some kind of great, great power war. If we can survive without a great power war in between now and 2028, because of the way things are changing in China and Russia, China's going to be running into a lot of negative trends itself, graying population, you know, debt maturity, things like that. I think there will be a, a diminution of the prospects of war. But between now and 2028, it's only increasing from 50% to above. And um, space is going to play a critical factor in that war. It could be the decisive factor. All right. Any final thought for us? Um, yeah, by my book, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it is a roadmap to how we, how we stay competitive as a country. And I think how we prevent uh, totalitarianism and authoritarianism from from taking over the world. I know the last four years from this country, it has seemed chaotic. It's actually not been that bad the last four years. Um, even the threats to democracy that we've experienced over the last couple of weeks ultimately fell flat. And so the great hope is that Joe Biden is the moderating force he claimed he was, that he can resist both the hard left as well as the hard right and, and appeal to the majority of Americans who are moderate and who who want a strong America, but also one that is understanding and open. All right. So people can find you at thewhitecardreport.com on Twitter uh, and YouTube. Um, any other site uh, or project? Uh, you can also that? follow me on Clubhouse app. Uh, it's at We the Brandon. I'm on that app quite frequently now. So. All right. Uh, uh, I do highly recommend listeners check out... Uh, those websites which will appear uh, in the video and your book winning space which i just uh, finished a uh, great book and i definitely Thank think you. space will be the key domain going forward uh, as it brings together all of the so-called fourth industrial revolution uh, talking points such as biopolitics big tech ai war and so on so thank you for being on geopolitics and empire thank you i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast and interview I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.